again, my name is Nate Arnold, and, and good morning, and we'll be continuing our series from last week. Uh, it's a four-part series, and uh, it's entitled The Majestic God, and last week, if you remember, we, reco- uh, we covered Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we covered the creation, we gave you a fancy new word called the Aramaic, co- or Aramaic Adamic Covenant, wow, uh, Adamic Covenant, we talked about the fall of man, we talked about the curse and the promise of hope, and this morning we're preaching from Genesis 8 and 9 like we, we just read, and the title of the sermon is The Majestic God Who Preserves and Establishes, and the, the main idea in all of this text is God's grace is our only hope. This is the majestic God who preserves and establishes, but God's grace is our only hope. Now, after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, things began to go downhill for mankind and and on the earth. And Cain kills his brother. For those of you that remember the story, Cain winds up killing his brother and murdering him in the field all over a sacrifice. And God protects Cain's life. It's kind of a mystery, but He does. He puts a mark on Cain and He says, anybody that kills Cain, vengeance will fall on them sevenfold. And then the Bible records that a descendant of Cain named Lamech becomes a polygamist. He he marries two ladies. And then he kills another man and he invokes that same curse on himself. He says if if the curse for Cain was sevenfold, then the curse upon anybody that kills me as a murderer will be 70-fold. And then in chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis, as we progress towards our text today, we see two lines of people develop. And we talk about those a little bit uh, in in last, last Sunday. But we see the line of Cain, and it's recorded for us in the Scripture. And then we see the line of the second son, of or the third son actually, but the second righteous son of Adam. And his name is Seth. And we see that line all laid out in in chapters 4 and 5 for us. The descendants of Cain are the ungodly line. And the descendants of Seth are the godly line. And a mixing of these two lines begins to happen. The scripture records that for us. It's got nothing to do with race or anything like some people will read into the text. All these people are genetically the same. They come from the same grandmother So there's no race or issue here going on, but the the godly line and the ungodly line begin to cross paths and they begin to intermingle in in the text. And it begins occurring more and more and murder becomes rampant and mankind writ large takes advantage of God's grace. And coupled with his long lifespan, these people are living eight, nine hundred years uh, it begins to sin more and more and without restraint. And the Bible records that the whole earth becomes violent. 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 And God <clears throat> extends grace once more, just like He did in the fall, just like in Genesis chapter 3, and He sets man a time to repent. Because mankind's rampant sin has to be dealt with. God can't let it go anymore. It's become so bad. And he says in Genesis 6.3, he says, My spirit will not always strive with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. 
In other words, mankind has 120 years to repent. God just started the countdown timer. And it begins to count down. And 1 Peter uh, 3.20 reinforces this particular view for us. If, if you want to uh, look that up afterward, 1 Peter 3.20. And you'll see that the patience of God waited in the time of Noah for them to repent, and they did not. And it's interesting here in this piece of text to me that God points out that man is flesh. Flesh. He's flesh. And Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, <clears throat> says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There was nothing about this generation and this group of people that was even trying remotely to please God. There was no, no point in them that wanted to do that. But man ignores God and he continues on his sinful way and God is repulsed by man's sinfulness. And the Scripture tells us as we're moving forward to our text here in Genesis 6-5 and then later in 11 and 12, uh, verses 11 and 12 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It, that's how mankind was. That's how we are, if we're honest. Uh, only evil continually. And, now, and then in verses 11 and 12, he says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way. And God makes a decision. He decides to withdraw grace. He had extended grace, which was unmerited favor. They didn't do anything to deserve it, but He extended it. And now He chooses to withdraw this grace and allow judgment to rightly fall on the world. And we see that in Genesis 6.13 where God says to Noah, He says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence. Get this word over and over. Violence, 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 violence. Happens over and over in the text. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Destroy them with the earth. Now anytime you see God's judgment in the Scripture, you always see the reasons why. I know of no case where God brings judgment in the Scripture that he doesn't lay out the reasons why. And he's just made a full case for why he's about to allow judgment to come on the face of the earth. And then God informs Noah of his intentions. And he directs Noah and his family to build an ark. And they do. And he directs Noah and his family to enter the ark. And they do. They obey. And uh, just a quick aside, think of how long it took to build the ark. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it must have took a good long time for Noah to, to build the ark. And this whole time, God is patient. I don't know if it was the full 120 years on the countdown timer. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it, it had to take a good long time. And, and Noah 
begins to build this ark. And then finally it's finished. And they enter into it at God's direction seven days ahead of the flood. And then God destroys, wipes off the face of the planet every living thing that has breath. And we teach this as a children's story. This is a scary, scary thing that God does. And then Noah and all with him remain in the ark for over a year. As far as I can tell from the text, it's about a year and 17 days they're in the ark. Think of that. This is not a week, two weeks. Hey, we're hanging out with the, with the elephants, you know, playing with the rhinos, playing fetch with the lions and tigers. This is a year he's in the ark. He's, he's stuck in the ark. And, and the Lord has him there. And God directs Noah. Finally, one day, the ark comes to rest. We all know the story. It lands in the mountains of Ararat. There's a series of letting birds go to know if the ground's dry. Uh, Noah is anxious to get out, get out of the ark. But Noah doesn't move till the Lord tells him to. And finally, the, the uh, dove comes back with the olive, olive branch in her mouth and he knows, hey, the ground's dried up. Trees are coming out. Things are, things are moving nicely. And then God tells Noah... Noah to, I keep wanting to say Moses for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> and, but at God's direction, God tells Noah and the passengers to disembark. And Noah steps off the ark onto a fresh new world. A place that you can walk for days and never see anybody. Because the other seven are with you. You can never see anything. It's just been wiped slick clean. All the vegetation is fresh. Everything is new. The whole newness and the freshness of the new world Noah steps out into. And what's the first thing that Noah does? And this brings us to our text today. The very first thing that Noah does. He worships. The very first thing after being delivered, him and his family and stepping out into this brand new world, he worships. And in chapter 8, verse 20, where our text begins today, there are three things about Noah's worship that I want to bring up very quickly in the text. And I want to ask, how does that compare with the way we worship today? But the first priority for Noah is that he worships. And the three things are, Noah's worship was spontaneous. It welled up in him. Second of all, Noah's worship was costly. And third of all, Noah's worship required work. Required work. Noah's worship was spontaneous. It was genuine. It was pure. It was pristine. And it comes naturally because of the salvation and the deliverance that God has wrought in his life and in his family's life. It just wells up in him and comes out of him. And it's natural because of the good work and the great things that God has done to him and for him, even though they were terrible, terrible things on the earth. Well, let me ask the question, what about us today? How do we worship? How many times do you and I look at our life circumstances and meditate on our salvation and just stop and spontaneously thank the Lord? 
How many times do we do that? When we get to realize the freshness of the life that we live in now, how many times do we just stop and go, Lord, thank You so much. Thank You. Thank You for my family. Thank You for this. Thank You. How many times do we do, we do that? And if we're honest with ourselves, I, I certainly, I know, I don't do it enough. And what could we focus on that would help us be more worshipful in our daily lives? Think about that. What kind of things would make us more thankful? What kind of things would make each of us more worshipful? Just like Noah was when he stepped out of the ark and began to worship. Well, Noah's worship was spontaneous. Noah's Noah's worship was costly. And you say, what do you mean, Nate? (laughs) Well, I'll put it in today's context. I happen to look this up because I'm an old farm boy and we always follow what the price of cows and pigs are. And uh, the, the, the going price of a bull today, just your plain old run-of-the-mill bull that you're going to make hamburger, is about $2,500 to $4,500. Okay, that's what your basic big old beefalicious costs. And the first thing Noah does, he's only got seven pairs of these, and they're all clean animals. Note that in the Scripture. So that's the animals that he and his family are going to use to survive on And Noah chooses to take, the Bible doesn't give us the number, but he says he takes some of each of the clean animals and he sacrifices them to God. Noah's sacrifice is costly. Very costly. You say, well, inflation today, $2,500 bull, uh, you know, it's a little different back then. I would agree with you that, that the price would be different. The value is the same. Matter of fact, the value for the bull for Noah is probably a little higher than our value because a bull was also a tractor back in those days. So his worship was costly. What about us today? How often do you and I take something of significant value and just give it to God? Remember, Noah, when he put that on the altar... $2,500 went up in smoke, literally, (laughs) literally, like taking your billfold and throwing it on the altar. Think of it that way. It was costly. So how, how often do you and I take something of significant value and just give it to God out of thankfulness for what he has done? Instead of piling up our treasures, we all do it. I won't ask for a a raise of hands, but, you know, most people have storage areas nowadays, a great big industry in the United States where people are storing stuff, and we pile it up. That's what we do as Americans. We're the richest nation on the planet. But how often do we give things a value out of thankfulness for what God has done instead of piling up? In what way could we freely give something of significance just to honor God? What would that look like for you and I? What would it be? I don't know. That's for you to answer before the Lord. But Noah's worship was spontaneous. It was costly. And Noah's worship required work. Think of this. Noah wants to spontaneously worship God. The first thing he has to do is build an altar. The two traditional ways to build an altar is to make a big pile of dirt or to pile up a bunch of uncut rocks and make them in a pile that will hold a big fat cow, a big fat sheep, a big fat ram, and either pigeons or turtle doves. This is a pretty big altar. This is not this little bitty thing, you know, podium-sized cow don't fit here. 
Noah has to go to work and build an altar. Then Noah has to get the wood. I don't know if he got it from the ark or if he got it from various trees around him. The Bible does not tell us where the wood came from. But Noah had to cut some wood, and it takes a serious amount of wood to burn up a 1,500-pound cow. It took work. And then Noah had to kill the animals. He had to prepare the animals. And he had to get the animals up on top. I, I don't know if you... Again, I grew up in a farm community and I, on a farm. And I, when it came time to butcher a cow, it took some serious horsepower. We normally used a tractor to handle the, the, the carcass so we could properly butcher it. But there was only... Three of Noah and his three sons, and, and they had to take that cow apart. That's a lot of work. It takes a whole family a whole day to process a cow in, in farm communities. That's why typically farm community families band together. We'll all visit the other farm. We'll help them do their stuff. Then they come to my farm. Noah didn't have that. He didn't have any of that. It took a lot of work for Noah to worship, this, worship this way. Well, what about us today? How often do you and I struggle with worship? I mean, I struggle with reading my Bible. If I'm honest, I go, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. Uh, I struggle with praying. I go, Lord, I want to pray for X amount of time, and that's out the window. I, I blow it all, all the time. Or even coming to church. You know, I stayed up last night watching White Collar you know, I was binge-watching binge White Collar or whatever, uh, and I can't, can't make it to church. It would require some extra work. How often do we find ourselves in, in that position? And then, what are some areas that you and I can be more energetic in the area? I'm not just talking about coming to church, but in the way we worship God in our lives, to put more energy into those things that God has called each of us to do and granted us the opportunities to do. Well, this moves us to uh, verses 21 and 22 in our text. And we see that it says there, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Matter of fact, this is the only time in all of the text of the Bible that God is recorded to have smelled something. This is it. You're, you're looking at it right here. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God knows how we are. God knows my frame. God knows what trips me up. Neither again, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Noah's action, his worship, pleases God. It is a pleasing aroma to God. And as we've already said, that's the only place in Scripture where the Lord is said to smell. And the neat part about this is we get some of the inner monologue of God's heart. We get a window here in these Scriptures of what God really thinks and what His disposition is toward us. And we see that the thoughts of His heart we see His compassion towards us. Even though the Lord has just wiped every living thing off the face of the planet, we see that God is positively disposed to us. That He is, He loves us. And it tells us in, in Ezekiel chapter 18 and also 33 that the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not looking for that. 
I mean, he will judge when he has to. The scripture's clear. But he has no pleasure in it. And once again, we see here that God doesn't stay angry. He doesn't stay angry. His, his grace immediately begins to come out. He's positively disposed toward us. He quickly extends grace to mankind right here. He says, never again will I do these things. Never again for all eternity will this happen on this planet or to man. God's grace is extended directly to us. And we see in Isaiah 54.9, it echoes this passage where God says in, in Isaiah there, He says, this is like the days of Noah to me. I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. People often see God in the Old Testament as an angry and judgmental and God ready to drop the hammer. If you carefully read the text of the Old Testament, you'll see that's not true at all. It's not true at all. God is a gracious and loving God, ready, standing, waiting to extend grace all the time. He's not foreboding. He's full of grace. I like what Kenneth Matthews says in his commentary, and it really kind of stuck with me. He said, God is not a dispassionate accountant overseeing the books of human endeavor. Rather, He makes a personal decision, very personal to God, out of sorrowful loss to judge Noah's wicked generation. God made a personal decision, and it was a sorrowful loss to Him. It was a sorrowful thing that He, he had to do. And then we move to chapter 9. And I'm moving quickly through these, I know, but for the sake of time, we, we must do it. And chapter 9, verses 1-17 through 17, we see that God gives even more grace. There's more grace given here. Not only has, is He predisposed, He just, he just could, continues putting grace out and He pronounces a blessing. And part of this blessing is a continuance of what we talked about last week. Remember the promise? Remember where He said, hey, there's one that's coming that will crush the head of the serpent? And... All the grace that He extended by not whacking Adam and Eve off at the knees. We talked about that last time. He just keeps extending this grace over and over. And we see that this covenant, this is called the Noahic covenant. And this covenant is a sub-covenant of Genesis chapter 3. It is the platform that God uses to bring to pass everything else that's going to happen in the Bible. This is the steady eddy of the earth and all the, the machinations and machinery of the earth that He's going to put in place so that the rest of His promise can be carried out on the stage of time until you get to the consummation of that in Christ and the ultimate consummation of that in the return of Christ. And that's what this covenant that we're looking at here in, in chapter 9 does for us. And in verses 1 and 3, he elevates. The first thing he does is he elevates man right back to his original position. Man has fallen. Man has been wiped off the planet. And the very first thing that God does here in verses 1, 1 and 3 and also 7, says, and God blessed. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Heard that before? Back in Genesis chapter 2, right? The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. That's language reminiscent of rule over everything. You're the boss. 
He puts him back in his proper, proper place. And then in verse 7, he says, again, twice, and you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth, multiply. <laughs> Get after it. And God just expresses grace there. And he elevates man right back to his original place in creation. Verses 4 and 6. He expands upon the elements of the coming promise. He begins to tell people that there's value in the blood. And the blood is life. And then when you take blood, you take life. Because he's going to develop that covenant later in time that when someone gives blood, they give life. That's going to happen later on, not, not here. But he begins to develop that idea. And he also sets boundaries where prior to the flood, there were no boundaries. Marks were set on Cain so nobody could kill him. But now if you take human life, whether you're an animal or a person, the Bible says your life is forfeit. By man, they'll take your life. And the Bible puts that in place as a boundary. And then in verses 8-17 through 17 of our text today, God establishes a framework of hope in the form of this covenant. And this covenant points towards, as we've already said, the restoration and the recovery of all things. And God's actions within this covenant enable the complete redemption of all creation. The things that God does here is what enables God to redeem the rest of creation. And that's backed up in Romans 8. If you go to Romans 8, verses 19 through 23, you can make a note there. But I'll read it to you. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For us, when we're revealed. For the creation was subject to futility, not subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is connected with us. We are connected with creation. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So the covenant points towards the restoration and recovery. The covenant is also one-sided. Everything about this covenant is all God, no man. Everything about this covenant is all God and no man. God continually says, I establish my covenant with you. I establish my covenant with you. I have established my covenant with you. And every action and everything in this covenant is all God. The parties are God and man, just like we saw before. The promise is there that I'll never again kill all flesh and I'll never again flood the earth. And then he gives us the sign, the sign of the rainbow. We'll talk about the sign a little more in a minute. But there are no conditions in this covenant. None. And if there's no conditions... There's no punishment. Think of that. Nothing to break. Nothing to fall short of in this covenant that God unilaterally makes with man. And then He seals it with a sign. And we all know the sign. The rainbow. 
Everybody loves a rainbow. I don't know of anybody that hates a rainbow. Anybody hates a rainbow, put your hand up. No, don't, don't, because the rest of the people will mob you. But, yeah, he seals it with a sign. And this sign is attached to the covenant promise. It, it's, 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 readily, it's there. It richly confirms what has been stated. God says, here's my promise. There's the sign of my promise. There it is. There's proof of purchase, three box tops from Cheerios, any way you want to put it, there's my sign and it's directly connected to the covenant. It ritually confirms what has been stated. And once again, it's instituted by God and God alone. Man has nothing to do with putting that sign up there and connecting it to the covenant. And the other thing that this does, because it's a covenant with God and man and all creation and all critters that run on the face of the earth, It's a universal covenant. It's not a special covenant that no one else can see. Everyone can see the rainbow. It's a universal covenant that God has put in place. And it displays the universality of of the covenant between me and you, speaking to Noah and every living creature. Well, why does God give us signs? Let's make a little jump here, but... Why does God give us signs in the first place? Why, why would he do such a thing? Because in our fallen condition, we, we need grace. I need hope. I need something to, to look at. Uh, I need signs. I need something that gives me the ability to grab a hold of that and go, God promised that. I can see that part. I can't see the rest of the promise, but I got that. And if I got that, I believe the rest of it's going to happen. And that's the purpose of a sign. And that's what God offers here. And we need to be constantly reminded that God is working out His plan to save us. Matter of fact, in in Christianity, we have a sign. Christ told the the Pharisees, He said, the only sign you guys are going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. That, you know, as man is three days in, in uh, in the earth, Uh, He says, I'll be three days in the earth and the resurrection is going to be your sign. That's the sign that we have as Christians that Christ arose. And that's the guarantee of if Christ can arise, He says He can raise me up. And that's the sign I have. The other signs we have here, are they're both signs and sacraments or what? Baptism is a sign. Baptism, if you will, please allow the language and be gracious with me. You're in the club. (laughs) You're in. It's a sign that gets put on you. You're, you belong to the body of Christ. You're part of that. You're, you're part of the covenant people of God in that sense. And it's a sign and a sacrament. What about the Lord's Supper? It's both a sign and a sacrament. That You know, the Lord says, I'm going to eat this anew. The next time I drink wine, I'm going to do it anew with you in the new kingdom. That's a sign and, and, and that gives us hope. And that's why God gives us those things. So not only does God give us covenants, and not only does God give us signs, but God gives us His Son. His only Son. And just as with Noah, the sacrifice has been offered. And God is positively disposed toward us to extend His grace to us. And the sacrifice in this case is Jesus Christ that by Him and through Him we may receive, just as Noah did, the grace that was freely offered, we can receive that through Jesus Christ. And with Noah and the ark, God extended grace. He put grace out there with Noah and the ark. 
And that grace was mixed with faith. Noah took God's command at His Word and he did something with Him. He, he operated in faith. And you and I must believe God the same way Noah did and act on His directions. The same is with Christ. God has extended grace. He offers rescue. And that grace has to be mixed with faith. You and I must believe God and act upon His direction in Christ. And we must turn from our sin and rest totally in the saving art that is Jesus Christ. Just as, as Noah did. And when we do, just like Noah, we're rescued. We're rescued. Romans 5, 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 1 and 2. And then similar, exact, well not exactly, but very similar to the, to the freshness that Noah experienced. Once we do that, once we put our trust in Christ and once we rest in Him, all our lives can be spent in the freshness of being a new creation. All of our lives from that point on can be spent. First, or 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're, we're a new creation if we're in Christ. The ark that is in Christ. And God's constant stream of mercy, just like we saw in the text and, and all the text leading up to it, God is constantly positively disposed to extend us grace in Christ. That constant stream of mercy comes to us through Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16 tells us this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is the majestic God who preserves and establishes, and He does it through grace. And God's grace is our only hope. Will you place your trust and grace in Him alone? Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, just as Noah was all in, the Bible says that he was both righteous and blameless. Righteous meaning that he obeyed you and blameless meaning that his heart was all in. It was all one way. Lord, I pray that You would help us to be that way with Christ. That You would grant us to see His beauty and the grace that's constantly extended to us through Him. And I'm not just talking about people who aren't followers of Christ. I'm talking about us who are Christians, who have known You for a long time. That, Lord, that it would be fresh to us again. That the new creatureliness would, would be fresh to us. And 
like stepping out into a new world and that our worship would be spontaneous and and Lord, it, we would just be willing to go any way that you desire for us to go. We would be fully in. That means if it takes a year riding a boat, that's what we're willing to do. And Lord, for those here this morning who may not know Christ, who may not have made a decision to follow Christ, may they see, may you reveal yourself to them and they see the grace that is offered. Lord, in the rescue that is offered, and the new life that is offered, the life eternal. May you reveal yourself to them and open their eyes. Open all of our eyes, Lord, so that we magnify the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.